God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. My administration will be focused on three very important words. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This man must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course, he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Hold on to your seats. Buckle up for safety. You are now entering another dimension with The Scott Adams Show. And that's right. My name is Scott Adams. You're listening to The Scott Adams Show. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. I, uh, I've i been thinking a lot over the weekend. I was uh, I had the pleasure to look at uh, some video uh, of an interview uh, with a... Uh, with a with a guy named Doug Mary, the Douglas Mary that uh, put out a he wrote a book basically the uh, end of Europe as we know it and it kind of made me think about you know a couple of years back I, I I was getting back from uh, Italy and I said to uh, our audience I said you know I was on a train and I had this profound uh, thought about um, how there's no middle class and just over the weekend I had a conversation. Um, about uh, the we were talking about Venice, and uh, I said, you know, the one thing about Venice is you have the elite class, and then you have uh, the peasants. You have no middle class, and and all these liberals that were in the room agreed with me that uh, that was the case, which drives home, you know, exactly my point. I've always said that you cannot have socialism. If you have a strong, vibrant, independent-thinking, working middle class that's not rigged against you, you cannot have socialism if you have that. And that's why the last bastion of hope is always and still is the republic for which it stands, the United States. The United States is the last of the Mohicans when it comes to freedom, liberty, justice, and the pursuit of happiness. It's the last chance on earth for freedom. Just like we have solved all kinds of problems throughout the world, whether it's inventions or breakthroughs or whether we've saved the world from tyranny. In World War II, we thwarted Hitler uh, we also, at the same time, uh, s- stopped the aggression of Japan. 
who uh, basically saw a three-world tier order, three-tier world order, which would be Japanese would rule the Asian areas of the world uh, because they were in need of precious minerals and and assets and resources outside of their small island with their booming population back in that day. And they decided to take out our Pacific fleet and thought that no way could we get involved with two wars at the same time. And America stood tall and beat them both. Actually, with the help of scientists, if you trust the science, with the A-bomb, because without that, I don't know how that uh, war in the Pacific would have worked out. But it was people like Dr. Fauci that got involved with the Pentagon and the CIA to help build weapons from a scientific perspective, scientific breakthroughs. That's why I've always said that I think Fauci is a protected soul in, in our government, a protected bureaucrat. He's a protected bureaucrat that was doing work and is doing work with the CIA, with the State Department, and with the Pentagon. I think he has all kinds of top-secret clearances to give him a green light on how to coordinate and be, act as a liaison between the scientific community, the academic community, uh, and the uh, Pentagon and the CIA to facilitate the need. I don't even think it's a need. I think it's a misguided interpretation of what they need. But uh, their interpretation will be the need for a bioweapon or for control. I think that the State Department and the Pentagon maybe are looking at things from two different lenses. And I've always said that the CIA is directly a lineage, lineage to the White House by way of the State Department. And the NSA is direct lineage to the White House by way of the Pentagon. And the FBI is a direct lineage to the White House by way of the Department of Justice. That's how our government is set up. And that's why we set up a DNI, an office of uh, DNI. And uh, that way you'd have one central person in control and in charge of a lot of these things. I think that's why, though, you don't see Trump trashing Fauci the way you'd think he would. There, he seems to be a protected person. Because if he were to be taken down or murdered, the blow would be on somebody's hands, and I don't think that they want to take that that legal risk. But I was thinking, you know, as we were talking about the lack of a middle class, you know, if you have a middle class, a middle class is supposed to represent 60% of a healthy society. And then you're going to have 20% Rich, 20% poor. Let's just keep it simple for the sake of math, right? We're not going to get very scientific with this, but the idea is is that in that 60, you have a 20% upper, 20% right dead square in the middle, and 20% lower middle. But nevertheless, you have that, you know, those people that are free to work, free to paint their picket fence a white or pink or whatever color they want, depending on their, you know, uh, HOA and uh, guidelines, which they all vote on locally, which is fine by me, 
You want to live in a community uh, that has an HOA, that has strict conditions, that's fine. You could always move, whatever, but you're a free man to do whatever you want. And the idea is, is if you want to build a deck on the back of your house or have a pond or whatever it is, you don't need uh, too much say about it. You legally have a right to do that. The government, the federal government can't stand in your way. If you want to uh, have a gas-guzzling truck, if you want to send your kids to private school, if you want your kids not to have to be uh, indoctrinated by critical race theory, you have that choice in a healthy society. So the middle class, they live on the margins. They have a budget they have to live by, and it's a finite budget. And they're directly impacted by governmental decisions, whether it's a big spending bill or whatever. But at the end of the day, inflation affects them. Gas prices affect them. And so on and so forth. The price of beef, the price of whatever, every little thing affects them. And so, you know, they're raising their kids. They don't want to be told whether they could congregate in their church or not with some COVID mandate that they don't understand and it's not been made clear. And all the while, we're learning more and more that the people in charge of these mandates and decisions don't have the first clue as to what's what. We don't even keep our own statistics here in America. We have to actually outsource to Israel and other countries. We're finding now that this African variant, the uh, Omicron variant, is is uh, not even... Um, what we expected. Oh, the travel ban was maybe uh, premature, Fauci says. Maybe we're going to have to reel that one back. Just willy-nilly, you just read a root news report, and all of a sudden you make a, a decision that impacts, I think it was punishment against South Africa. I think it was punishment. They have 25%, 26% is the number I heard, uh, people that were vaccinated. They didn't get it too, they're not too into the whole vaccination thing. They've been down that road before. And they basically were not towing the line, playing the game. And I think at some point, they decided they stopped with the, we don't want any more Pfizer vaccines. We don't need them. Oh, you can't have that. And uh, two days later, somewhere in that neighborhood, WHO says Omicron came out of South Africa. So, you know, I think that it's a, it's a little bit of a tool that's being used to create economic damage or compliance. It's a carrot or it's a stick. And they make these carrots and sticks up as they go. You could be a perfectly great candidate, for example, like Donald Trump was, and you could make stuff up. You could just make crap up like Russian hoax, uh, Russian hoax, Russian collusion. You know, you can make it up just like you did Watergate. Watergate was a hoax. Yeah, it was a, certainly the burglary happened. And certainly there was collusion with Russia, but it wasn't by Trump. It was by the left. And I think that the burglary in the Watergate was probably paid off by the left, too. All the while to get, to get somebody to in the scramble to make a mistake and cover something up that they shouldn't and make that mistake and get them impeached and play these stupid games, these stupid games of power grab because somehow you think that your idea is the better idea. 
You can't just leave it up to the voters because you don't trust American voters. And so we're left with this rigged election. We're left with a puppet candidate, uh, uh, presidency, a rogue presidency, a regime that everybody in the world knows is could be bought and sold. There's so much dirt on the Bidens, it's not even funny. They got a complete puppet in the White House. And if it's not Barack Hussein Obama's puppet, it's, it's uh, Vladimir Putin's puppet. If it's not Putin's puppet, it's uh, President Xi's puppet. Nobody respects Joe Biden. He's going to be meeting uh, with um, Putin soon. He's going to be, uh, he's already had the meetings with uh, Xi. And just like, you know, Putin decided to go into Ukraine after Sochi in those Olympics, you better believe that they're going to go right, they're going to go into Taiwan and they're going to mistreat the Uyghurs and they're going to you know basically take over Hong Kong like they'd never had before um in terms of control of their politics and what have you um and you're going to see all that develop in a nasty way after the Beijing after the new Olympics in China didn't China just have an Olympics i think it was the winter olympics I mean, they had a great opening ceremony and all that. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, why is China being rewarded for their polluting the earth and their atrocities of human rights? Why in the world does the Olympic Committee bow to China? Of course, it's because China is loaded with cash. They're corrupt as hell. And they have basically slave labor markets that the world's corporations want access to. The major corporations in the world toe the line for the governments, the woke, radical, left-wing governments. Same term would be globalists. I always have this phrase, globalism sucks. It just does. Globalists are worse than liberals. They're totalitarian people. They're not elected by any one population. It's representation without taxation. It's exactly what we don't want. And they will rule the world. And the people in charge are the ones that want to, be, want to make it happen today because they're it's like musical chairs. They're the ones in the hot seat right now. And they're the ones that will wield the, the stick of power right now if it happens now. Angela Merkel and people like that will benefit from it. You know, they've already have. You know, why was the European Union started in the first place? So, you know, I wrote this note for this show over the weekend. And I was thinking a lot about, you know, the middle class and the the destruction of Europe and how we're next. And that it was really great to see what happened with Brexit. But guess what? They never let Brexit happen. It was really great to see what happened with Trump when he won the 2016 election. But they never really let that happen, did they? Things that aren't part of the globalist structure or script never really seem to pan out for the people. What the people want is not important. It's what the power elite want. And these people have been in charge for forever. You take... um, So many of these European leaders, you see the same faces for 15 years. Putin, when was the last time? Can you remember who preceded him? 
How about Angela Merkel? Will she ever leave Germany's uh, top tier? She's still got her face planted all over the place. I mean, when is she going to leave already? How about the Blasio? You know, all these people. You know, I just want to see them gone. They can't leave soon enough in my book. The governor of Virginia, you know, leave already. You know, that kind of thing. So I actually wrote this note. It's, uh, it says, similar, this was my note for the show. It's, it was actually just to try to keep me tighter because I always go off on a tangent. And I said, civil liberties versus public safety confined to science. This is what we're going through, folks. The way they're actually getting to violate our civil liberties with COVID is through science, academia. They're combining it all. The medical profession, the medical world is radically left. It's as left wing as the academic institutions. And I know, I know this because the CDC, every, all their employees, they said, how did you donate in the last election? And this, this came out like in 2016, so it must have been the you know, Obama election or uh, for Hillary, how, what did they donate, whatever it was. It was it's about four-year-old data. And uh, the, 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 the answer was 98%. CDC is radically left, and they don't even keep statistics that help us in these pandemics or endemics or whatever you want to call it today. But the civil liberties, our civil liberties, are being stampled and trampled upon by using public safety. For example, if you you yell fire in a uh, movie theater, guess what? You're going to go to jail. You could have caused a stampede. You could have made it uh, uh, an emergency situation where people got trampled on and killed. Unsafe. You know, and then the old, whole argument, what they seem to be going toward is, uh, you know, how dare you walk uh, along uh, without getting a vaccine? You could kill us all, you know, just because you want to be some hero. It's like, no. I, I'm exercising my civil liberties, my first, my 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 inalienable rights as a as a human being. This was sprung upon me, and you you provided no data, and the data you did provide was completely from one party affiliation. So why would I ever believe you? You're the same party that has Jesse Smollett acting like he was. Uh, lynched in Chicago at two in the morning in the freezing cold, or you're the same party that had Democrats, uh, I guess from the Lincoln Project, which are Trump haters, work on behalf of uh, McAuliffe to try to win that election against Youngskin in Virginia by having a bunch of white supremacists holding tiki torches. And, uh, and for what? You know, and that whole group that showed up in D.C. recently, uh, their Patriots, uh, Patriots March or something like that. I forget the name. But that group, uh, all wearing khaki pants and flags upside down and all kinds of stuff. They look like straight out of central casting for FBI. J6 was an infiltration, not an insurrection, you know. 
And it goes on and on. You know, the liberals have been faking these these faux white supremacists or I've never even run into a well, I don't even know the name of a white supremacist group. I don't know the name of one. And you ask that question, people say, well, the KKK. And I'm like, yeah, really? I don't know of anybody that say, hey, I'm a racist. I don't know anybody about that. But they just keep on accusing because it somehow works. So they, they want to call you a leopard if you don't get vaccinated. And they also want to say that you're a murderer because you're not buck, you're not towing the line. You're not paying uh you're not basically listening or doing what the liberals tell you to do. And, you know, my biggest problem always is once you get that number of vaccinated up to above 70 percent, you're going to basically have what the, the corporations had done for Jim Crow laws back in the 60s and 50s. Jim Crow laws were written by the liberals, by the Democrats. State and local officials, Democrats all through the South wrote unconstitutional guidelines, and the net result was they would never, ever get the Supreme Court to uh, adhere to all their demands and guidelines and segregational tactics. Just like the vaccine passport is a divider, a segregation segregational mechanism, naturally the liberals love segregation. Black Lives Matter even loves segregation. Black Panthers wanted segregation. All the radical left-wing monsters, the violence, the disobedience that they practice on a routine basis, whether it's the Weather Underground or whether it's Antifa, whether it's Black Panthers or it's Black Lives Matter, it's the same playbook, whether it's Watergate or it's the Russian hoax. All from the same playbook. It's all a ruse. You could be a perfect candidate, do nothing wrong, and still have something pinned on you that somebody else made up. And if you're smart like Donald Trump was, well, you know, you did nothing. But that definitely prevented him from actually exposing the crimes and the lies and the deception and the anti-American acts of the previous regime, which was the Barack Hussein Obama regime. Basically, that guy hated America worse than anybody. And his post-presidency actions prove it. I mean, I think his closest ally in terms of world leaders was Erdogan. And we've seen what Erdogan is doing to that Cantor guy, the Boston Celtics basketball player. Erdogan is a tyrannical thug, radical Muslim, you know, Islamic uh, jihadi, disguised as a president of a NATO country. He's a two-bit thug. But you know what? We all have to get along with these thugs in the world. So I wrote these notes, though, and I started off with this whole debate, you know, of how they're violating our civil liberties by using public safety, like shouting fire in the theater, right? So I say civil liberties versus public safety confined to science. How can you defend, you know, how can you, all all 97% of the scientists when it came to global warming, they couldn't possibly be wrong. Just like they said with the hoax 
All 17 intelligence agencies couldn't have gotten it wrong. It's got to be right. Well, they were wrong. And so were the 97% scientists who all basically used the same flawed data, came up with the same flawed conclusion, and all got the same flawed kickbacks, money, to do this research to perpetuate government control over your, uh, your actions, violating your civil liberties every step of the way. I mean, if they haven't used 9-11 to violate your civil liberties through the Patriot Act, you know, by God, they're going to do it some other way, whether it's global warming or whether it's uh, COVID. They are going to get you. They are out to get you. That's what they're out to do. So I write this, and it's taken a long time for me to get through this paragraph of my note for the day. I said, civil liberties, this is how I cued the show up from my mind. I said, civil liberties versus public safety confined to science. While propagandized by radical corporate media supported by multinational work corporate, uh, national corporations, requires censorship by big tech, you see? So we got two things that are gonna, we're going to be spe- spending close attention on today. One is the censorship. They don't censor Taliban, but they censor Donald Trump. Twitter. We're going to talk a little bit about Twitter today. There's a really interesting article that just came out recently that we're going to get into by this guy named Tabib. In any case, uh, censorship by big tech social media. And I think that they, they are also protected by the Pentagon and by the ruling class. And that's why Section 230s remained untouched. I think that their Jedi um, cloud uh, that Amazon was trying to sell to the government, I think that uh, a lot of these different cloud technologies and a lot of this different um, data collection, it's the reason why Facebook is calling themselves Meta now instead of uh, Facebook. Do you recall when we were talking about James Clapper lying to the American public about do they eavesdrop on our, our, not wittingly, he said. Remember that? He was the head of the CIA, then he was the head of the DNI. Well, guess what? That was all they were, you know what they were calling that? They were saying that was run out of the NSA, and that was all metadata. Metadata is like this data where you can use the data when you fill out a survey or anything like that. It becomes metadata, and it, it, it shows you trends. Hot, hot zones and cool zones. And it's basically not specific in terms of detail. But what it does is it shows you trends. Metadata is data that's collected, not necessarily analyzed, but through uh, OCR, you know, through different kinds of decoding, uh, gets put into certain categories. And you could start to see trends. Trend analysis, metadata collections, and invaluable for that. Well, these social media tech giants are all protected by those who really and truly run America. And we're talking about the military apparatus. We're talking about the central intelligence. We're talking about the State Department. But we're talking about all the spooks and clowns in our, in our uh, country right now. So we talk about censorship. 
we say, uh, and then and then we want to. I want to talk a little bit about what Douglas Murray had to say, and he talks about um, assimilation and immigration, best described by Douglas Murray in Hoover Institute's interview, and we're going to get to that. And a good example is if London. And this is a good example because he resorts to London. I thought this was a good example, too, because when you think of London, you think you think of England and you think about their culture. You think about the Beatles. You think about Benny Hill. You think about their style of comedy. Right. You think about Monty Python. Right. What you don't think about is, you know, uh, you don't think about the London mayor, uh, Amir Shah, uh, forget his name, but in any case, the, the radical Muslim liberal communist socialist, Amir Khan, I think that's his name, and he's the uh, mayor of London. And, um, and he embellishes and he, he, um, he promotes, he loves. Uh, the fact that London now is like international and that Douglas Mary goes into the idea that London is no longer English. It's a minority. And we go back and we listen to Joe Biden talking about in front while um, Majorca, the DA, uh, Department of Homeland Security's, the guy that's opening the southern border for us, right? allowing all this riffraff to come through our country, whether they're tested or not. Even Fauci admitted, well, that's a whole different story, right? We don't have to test those people. We have to test everybody else. Travel bans galore, but not for the people that want to come through our open border. Well, that's going to be put to a stop now that we have remained in Mexico restored, but that's a whole other topic right now. The point is, is that they they were talking about London losing its identity, England in general losing its identity. And I said, ah, oh, wow, that's interesting. Because once you lose your identity, you lose your I you lose your ability to know who you are. If you don't know who you are, you don't even know why you would defend yourself, your country, your city. And if you don't have that you don't have the need the, then what's the if you're an international city or international country where you're no longer english if you're london you no longer know what the beatles are you don't know what benny hill was about you don't know what monty python was about now it's all radical islam and it's this that and the other it's a whole bunch of high crime and misdemeanors and crap People stabbing each other in the streets. And it's all this all this other nonsense, right? It's absolute nonsense. And so what we have is we have a situation where if you're international, then what's here's the million dollar question. What's the big deal with open borders? So if what Joe Biden said about uh America is that We'll be a minority. Uh, Americans will be the minority in our country. That will be taken over by every ethnic group known to man, but it won't be American anymore. And that's why they want to tear down the statues. Again, it's because 
why would you even consider having a border if you're already a melting pot of international riffraff, mishmash? They're going to control the globe anyway. See, that's what globalism is. They don't care if they're in Montana or in Timbuktu. They don't care if they're in Transylvania, Romania, or wherever. They don't care because they're going to rule the world without borders. That's what the European Union was about, taking away the borders, taking away your identity. What they're doing with all this import of refugees and and, and UN programs and open borders, if you're so confused as to who your identity is, you don't even know if you're Londoners, if you're from England and you're in London, like what Benny Hill was about or the Beatles or uh, Monty Python, it's now taken over by, you know, Muhammad and sons and their knife-wielding uh, jihadis. At some point, why have a border? Because what are you defending? It's international. There's no identity. There's no nationalism. And it's the difference between international globalism which is really driven by socialistic and communistic uh, practices and what Trump was all about and what Brexit was all about. Even though the custodians of Brexit did not have the people's best interests at heart, it was about nationalist populists. It wasn't about nationalist socialists. See, Marie Le Pen over in France She's a little bit scary because, you know, Hitler was a little bit of a nationalist s- communist, nationalist socialist. And that's a scary brand. But if you have nationalist, uh, nationalist populist, all about federalism and smaller government like Trump was, you're going to have more bilateral deals that are fair trade. And that's actually good for pe- the people that vote for their representatives but not maybe so great for the multinational corporations because it doesn't give them a leg up or an unfair advantage to the small mom-and-pop stores on Main Street. And so there we are. The crux of this show, which took so long to explain. So internationalism, uh, right here, globalist internationalism versus nationalism, populism, are the struggle of the day. Internationalism is when borders become meaningless. And a country without borders is no longer a country. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Who then became, who then becomes the power elite who control everything? Chances are they are unelected, out of touch millionaires representing their own and issues while benefiting from taxation without. Uh, which is in this state amounts to slavery. So taxation without representation is really slavery. You're, you're now sheep. You're now slaves. And that is a sad, sad, sad place to be. Now, I'm going to try to uh, play some of this. This is um, about the death of Europe. This is Douglas Murray. I want you to take a listen. Now, this is a long, it's 47 minutes long, but I'm going to play the first... Uh, seven minutes or so, to give you a little bit of a tipping, uh, like a gist of what, what we're talking about. But I posted this up on my uh, 
social media, I recommend that you take a listen. <clears throat> it was a very strong interview. Um, we're probably going to break into this at some point because this is a YouTube audio where we're probably going to have a couple of commercials and that's going to be annoying as can be, but we'll, we'll, we'll work with it. Here we go. The strange death of Europe. I quote, Europe is committing suicide, or at least its leaders have decided to commit suicide. Whether the European people choose to go along with this is naturally another matter, close quote. We'll come to your argument in a moment, but the book appeared in 2017. For now, what do you make of what the people are willing to put up with two years after you published the book? It's very interesting. Um, in the two years since it came out, it's been coming out in, I think it's now out in every European language. So I've been pretty constantly, I'm in a different country every week in Europe and elsewhere. And so I get a pretty good sense of where things are. Um, I would say there are several things. The, the direction of travel hasn't changed, but some of those in positions of power have done things that I was surprised they would be willing to do to slow it down. I'm thinking particularly of the fact that the book centers on the migration crisis of 2015, which I just see as a sped-up version of something that had been happening for decades. But since uh, 2015, you know, the European leaders, among other things, did a deal with um, President Caliph Erdogan and... Uh, you know, he now has a gun to Europe's head that he knows he can fire at any point. The deal, but, just explain that. I'm going to have to stop sure. you from time to time to make sure that for an American audience we're, we're very explicit. Erdogan is president of Turkey, and the nature of the deal was... Uh, we Europeans pay him huge sums of money, and he stops boats leaving the Turkish shores for Greek islands. Right. And it is just as crude and straightforward as sure. that. He's not doing it out of the kindness of his heart. Right. Um... And things like that have undoubtedly meant that the flow of 2015 has slowed. I mean, the boats are still setting off from the North African coastline, uh, but nothing like the rate of 2015. So there have been some things like that that have surprised me. All right. Uh, let's lay out the basic argument. So you're not concerned with any kind of temporary European malaise or questions of slow economic growth, which is a lot of what we hear on the other side of the big water. Again, I'm quoting you. Europe today has little desire to reproduce itself, fight for itself, or even take its own side in an argument. By the end of the lifespans of most people currently alive in Europe, Europe will not be Europe, and the peoples of Europe will have lost the only place in the world we had to call home, close quote. Two years later, you, you stand, but that's a very dramatic statement. Two years later, you stand by that. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, in, in the lifespans of, as I say, most people, uh, it'll be a different place. It already is. And I lay some of that out in remorseless detail in The Strange Death of Europe. Um, sometimes when things happen relatively slowly, people get used to things, they adapt. Uh, I give the example of the census in the UK, the last census in the UK, which showed that in 23 out of 33 London boroughs, people who identify as white British are in the minority in those boroughs. So that, that in the lifespan of, I mean, you can either, you know, like that, dislike it, or feel so benign John, about it. But that, that's a massive change in just one person's lifespan already. John Cleese tweeted, as we taped this, it was, I think it was last week, John Cleese of Monty Python fame tweeted... London no longer seems to be an English city. If I'm, I think that's a close, yes. close paraphrase, if not a quotation. And he was attacked. Well, the attack 
as, as attacks are on Twitter. Yeah. But he was correct. He was correct. And by the way, factually correct. what he said is effectively what is boasted about by politicians, including the mayor of London and the previous mayor of London. They say, you know, it's an international city. They're very happy about that. But if somebody says, well, that means it's not an English city anymore, then they they, uh, attack somebody like, whether it's John Cleese, me or whoever, for heresy. I mean, it's very interesting, by the way, isn't it? I mean, John Cleese was, was attacked for the heresy of life of Brian, what, 40 years ago. (laughs) He's attacked by the clerics now. It's just they're the clerics of the far left and the social justice movements and so on. They just happen not to wear frocks like his previous critics. But it's the same phenomenon. I've debated and discussed these issues for years now, and I know every one of the moves that people do, the number of dishonest moves, things like, that's not the case. Okay, that is the case. That is the case, but you shouldn't say it. Or, that is the case, and it's great, suck it up. Right. right. So, to continue with the basic argument, um, this has come about, this death of Europe, or the death of, this has come about, quote, because of two simultaneous concatenations from which it is now all but impossible to recover. The first is the mass movement of peoples into Europe, close quote. So explain that, 20, explain 2015, and tell us what that was, what happened in 2015, remind us, and that was a speeded-up version of what? Well, Again, you're, deal- you're talking to a largely American mm-hmm. audience here, so fill us in. Basically, in the aftermath of the Second World War, most Western European countries decided that they wanted to invite migrant labor in to help rebuild. Uh, at the beginning, the idea was that they wouldn't stay. They would come, and then they'd go home after doing the job. Unsurprisingly, they did stay, or at least large proportions of them did. And gradually, people started to be brought in, even if there weren't jobs for them to go to. So, for instance, you imported large numbers of people from uh, the Indian subcontinent to mill towns in the north of England when there were no mills anymore. Um, and then, and the thinking on that was, uh, I'm not sure there was very much thinking. Uh, uh, it was what we call the cock-up view of history—a succession of of lazy and cowardly politicians who just found it easier to kick this one down the road and leave it to their successors to deal with. We kept changing the story of what we were doing as we, as we were doing it. I, I recount in the book, we moved from the guest worker period to the multicultural period where you said, yeah, live in our country and sort of pretty much do what you like, to the modern one, which is become like us. Now, those are three totally different things in the course, again, of one person's lifetime. And I blame no migrant for being confused by that because we were confused. But in 2015, um, the, the, the movement got to its height of total unregulated movement. And this was the year in which uh, it had started off in the beginning of this decade we're in, uh, partly people coming, fleeing Syrian civil war, but then uh, people from all across sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, the Far East. And I started traveling to the camps in uh, southern Europe where people were arriving in. I've been to many of the countries they were fleeing from. And it was a veritable United Nations of people. Now, in the eyes of some of the governments and many of the public, it was all people fleeing the Syrian civil war. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Even by the EU's own figures, at least 60%, 60% of the arrivals in 2015 had no more right to be in Europe than anyone else in the rest of the world. So when Angela Merkel invited a million refugees, refugees is, was the term, Migrants. Migrants, migrants let's call them migrants. Yeah. When she invited a million of them into Germany... This is crude. For I'll, I'll, I'll put it badly. You sharpen up what I'm about to say because this is the way an American would look at it. The Germans are still acting in some way or another out of a sense of war guilt. Sure. 
That's sure. that's straightforward. Oh, absolutely right. straightforward. I mean, I, uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, this is a job for a psychiatrist in many ways. Look at the reception at Munich Station. As 10,000 people were arriving every 48 hours or so at the height of the movement in 2015. Uh, they were coming up through the Balkans and up through Central Europe. And uh, there were crowds at Munich train station, uh, high-fiving the arrivals, giving them balloons, teddy bears. Um, what was it? It's perfectly obvious. It was Germans elated at the sight of people breaking into their country rather than trying to break out. Right. So, but even at that, even if it was a kind of act of German self-indulgence, an act on acting out of war guilt... The whole argument was that these people were unfortunate, that they were fleeing civil war, and you're saying that 60% of them simply weren't. A, a lot more than, than 60%. I mean, you, what you get into in all of the issues with migration is, and specifically European migration, is people find it incredibly hard to know where you salami slice issues. So, for instance, they say, yes, we'll have people coming in who are genuinely fleeing a Syrian civil war, for instance. Right. Well... There's an argument about that as well. You can look after 100 Syrians in a neighboring country for every one you look after in Europe. So it's not efficient in all sorts of ways, whether or not it's humane. But let's say that, yes, okay, people fleeing the Syrian civil war. But then you have the, the people, including the aid agencies, making the point, well, and one Afghan refugee made this to me to my face. He said, Syrians have only been at war for five years. We've been at war for 15 years. Why should they have priority? Very good question. So you go along that, and then you get to the thing that all of the aid agencies and the NGOs and others have been doing for years, which is you elide and rub out the difference between people fleeing war and people fleeing economic deprivation. Right. Now, one of the reasons why I'm quite tough about this is because I know where that argument leads. Gallup last year did a poll in sub-Saharan Africa. One-third of sub-Saharan Africans want to move. They're not going to go to Saudi Arabia. They're not planning to break into Yemen. They want to come to Europe. Now, in my view, the, the catastrophe underlying all of this is the presumption that every country in the world is basically a country for the people of that country, apart from Europe, and Europe is a place for the world. All right. A few figures from... So we're going to we're going to end that interview there but there's a lot more to that it's uh I think it's a remarkably good interview um but you know the thing is I've always asked the question uh why don't they just move to a neighboring country you know we were talking about that with Afghanistan why don't they just go to Uzbekistan why don't they set up a you know why don't we get the world's wealthiest nations to help set up communities not far from the border of Afghanistan. That way, when the Taliban falls or whatever next thing happens, they could always maybe go back to their home. Or uh, they could somehow work out a situation where they could stay in touch with their family members. Why do they have to be displaced halfway around the world? And let's face it, I mean, it's it's not like... Um, you know, I mean, Europe is a very expensive place. So you go from a mud hut for economic disparity or political uh, uh, dissidents and somehow or uh, planned obsolescence or planned chaos. You know, I mean, these planned tragedies are heartbreaking. 
We saw it play out firsthand in Syria, and I definitely agree with anybody who makes the argument, uh, which we've made on this show, about how Afghanistan was fully planned out under the Trump administration to have a routine and natural exit. Um, And then all of a sudden, you have this exit that uh, is completely tumultuous. We still don't even know where a large number of Americans are in Afghanistan. They're still trying to get out. There are still people on record trying to get out of that country and can't. People hanging from planes and people unnecessarily dying. And then all of, uh, all of a sudden they're showing up in Wisconsin. Just so happens it's a battleground blue wall state. You know, there's a lot of payoffs going on. China owns Georgia and naturally Stacey Abrams is probably going to win the governorship there. Because that's uh, the fix is in on that. She's running for governor, and I would, if I were, I would bet dollars to donuts that she wins that race. Even though everybody and their brother knows that Georgia is not a a blue state; it's a red state, but it's rigged, and that's all there is to it. It's obvious. I have two brothers that live in Georgia, and everybody knows what's going on in Georgia. They made a deal with China, deal with the devil. And when they made that deal, they were compromised on videotape. And they then had leverage against them to where if they want to go to jail, uh, they will not cooperate. If they want to co- avoid jail and stay rich and get paid off, they will cooperate. And they'll do whatever it takes, whether they're a Republican or a liberal. Does not matter. And you know who warned America about that? It was uh, Pompeo. He had a list of state governors and state uh, ranking officials, secretaries of state and what have you, attorneys generals. And he said, there are people in this room that have made deals with China. And naturally, China was looking to do deals with states because they were not getting the deal that they wanted through the Trump administration on a federal level. So they decided to do an end around and work with uh, easily compromisable or easily bought and sold politicians at the state level, which, frankly, are a lot cheaper. You could buy off a state governor or a secretary of state or state uh, governor, uh, state uh, uh, secretary of state or state uh, AG for a lot less than someone from within the cabinet of the White House. It's a lot more affordable and cheaper. And so, you know, that's that's just a part of what what's going on there. But. Uh, you wonder why they didn't just move them to a neighboring country. And shame on people like Lindsey Graham, who basically didn't want to pull out of Syria, and all of a sudden chemical weapons attacks or false flag attacks or fake ruse attacks, hoaxes, would occur. But nevertheless, you had all these refugees coming out of Syria, going to America and Europe, and all these refugees coming out of Afghanistan. Then you have this UN program, the medical professionals 
uh, professions love it because they get cheap labor uh, at a professional level to where every one of my nurses, you know, in the hospital was uh, from another country. And then you have these slave labor workers and these open, uh, these migrants that come through the open border, work in the farm agricultural fields, work in the slaughterhouses, running the dishwasher at a restaurant in the sweat box for 18-hour days, or driving your Lyft or Uber car all around God's green earth. And so you'd have all of that, and then some. You even had the sex trade. You had all kinds of human smuggling, all kinds of business. There was uh, money-changing hands. And it's exactly what we're having. And what you need to pull the, all of this off is you need the cooperation of big tech, which is owned by the government, cooperation by people like Fauci to control COVID, owned by, you know, once again, protected by the military apparatus. I think that the big tech is controlled and protected by the military apparatus. I think if we only knew the truth, how broad and how big this gets, we would understand firsthand how corrupt and how dangerous the world is that we're living in and how messed up our government is. But we must do better. But this is all part of it. And they're all benefiting from this globalist agenda, whether it's big tech or the corporate media, the politicians, But it's all about the money. It's all about following the money. And it's about moving people around. I've always said these globalists love to move populations around as if they're pawns on a chessboard. For one reason or another, but it always is about money. And, you know, we're going to pick up and, uh, you know, we didn't even finish uh, a lot of what we wanted to talk about today. Um, But there's still a lot more that we want to uh, cover in this topic and the topic of the Twitter change and the censorship and everything that's going on in between. Uh, You've heard of Russell Brand. We're probably going to have a clip tomorrow uh, related to Russell Brand that I think you'll find interesting and entertaining. And we're going to get into the other article uh, that was written, uh, written by Matt Tybee. So we'll get to that tomorrow as well. In any case, I want to thank everybody for tuning into the Scott Adams show. And uh, be sure to check out buglecall.org, magapack.org, scottadamshow.com for the latest podcast. And we'll see you all next time on the radio. Bye-bye, everybody. We're a stand, the mound's getting steeper. I grab a shovel, dig a hole a little deeper. Just to bury my kids right up to there.